Father, we pray that your spirit will breathe upon us as we continue in worship. Let us hear you and be open to you. In the name of Christ Jesus, amen. Please be seated. I suspect that all of us have a preference about, the, about our favorite kind of questions on a test. Now, was I, when I was in school, I didn't like any questions on any test, so it really didn't matter. But, but, my, but if I had to choose my preference, I, I tended to like true-false, multiple-choice questions. Because... Far too often, I wasn't quite as prepared as I probably should have been, and I figured you might get one or two right if you just guess. Uh, you know, the odds are if you put true to every answer, maybe you might get some of them right. So I, that, that was my preference. Now, other people like essay questions better. And their, their argument is that if you don't know as much, then you just write more. Some of you have had to grade some of those exams and realize what I'm talking about. And many of us have written those exams where we just keep writing as much as we can possibly think because we aren't quite sure we know exactly the answer to the question. Well, as you, as you read through the Gospels, you discover that in his encounters with Jesus, he asks a lot of questions of people. He asks pointed questions of the religious leaders. He asks leading questions of the common people whose lives intersect with his. He has a few questions for his heavenly father. And the majority of his questions are directed toward his disciples. The Gospels record Jesus asking more than a hundred questions. And almost all of them are essay type questions. Jesus asks questions that are rarely about facts or figures, but almost always are designed to move to the very heart of a person's being. His questions are about actions, but they're also about attitudes and motives and the very depth of our existence as spiritual beings. And the question in today's passage is, one of those go-to-the-heart-of-a-person type questions. And it's a question that's as valid and important and significant in the 21st century as it is in the 1st century. Jesus and his disciples are walking along the road to Jerusalem. And I'm not sure if the disciples really comprehend the impending events that are awaiting their master but they seem to have some sense that, that something dramatic is going to happen as they get into Jerusalem. But while they're on the road walking, the brothers, James and John, are able to somehow get to a place where it's just the two of them with Jesus. And, and the other guys aren't paying that much attention or aren't as close. And, and they say to Jesus, Jesus, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now, I worry a little bit when someone asks me, hey, would you do a favor for me? Well, I might, but I want to know what the favor is first. 
you know, I'm hesitant to say yes because I don't know what they want me to do. They might want me to jump off a cliff for them. Or maybe to cheat on a test or for them or, or to lie to the authorities about their whereabouts on the dating question. I've been watching too many Law and Order episodes and that gets into my head. You know, it's a little dangerous to, to promise help when you aren't sure what you're being asked to do. And so Jesus says to them, well, it depends. What do you want me to do for you? And these two brothers answer, we want to be we want to be the top dogs in your kingdom we want you to put us first of all of your disciples we want to be first now somehow james and john seem to realize that that jesus is the messiah however skewed the perspective of him might be and since they're headed for jerusalem i think they're anticipating some kind of showdown They seem to anticipate Jesus entering Jerusalem and and staking his claim as Messiah and setting up his kingdom. And and they seem to see that kingdom as probably something that's going to happen on earth. And James and John, recognizing this window of opportunity, want to get in on the ground floor of the power. Their question really ought not surprise us. It's a normal, natural, human request. And honestly, if I were in their shoes, it's probably a a request that I would make if I had the guts to do it. Wouldn't you? That's an ambitious request, but doesn't our world operate on the backs and the minds and the bank accounts of people who are ambitious? I mean, isn't that the way it works? It's the ambitious people who invent the products that we rely on every day, It's the ambitious people who run companies and write books. It's the ambitious people who are are the ones who are persistent and, and opportunistic. Those are the people that we stand in line and we pay money to see them and to ask for their autograph. These are the people that we admire for what they've accomplished. It's the ambitious people whose, whose names will be printed on the ballot when you go behind the curtain on November 4th. I mean, do you think that Barack Obama and John McCain would be representing their respective parties if they weren't ambitious and took advantage of the opportunities that came to them? Do you think that that Joe Biden and Sarah Palin would have been chosen as vice presidential candidates if they weren't ambitious and opportunistic? In fact, more ambitious and more opportunistic than the others who were being considered? Let's not be naive. Let's not believe that the world runs on anything other than ambition. You have to be blind to not believe that ambitious and self-serving and self-promoting actions are the way you get ahead in life. Anybody ever written a resume? And it's always been that way. That's why the other 10 disciples are so upset. They're thinking to themselves, man, why didn't we think of that first? I mean, you know, they're jealous because James and John are asking for something that they want. 
They're indignant because James and John have enough ambition to ask before the others ask. They're upset because these two guys have gotten what they want. And you know, people who've been around the church for a while tend to be appalled at James and John. But to most of the world, these are the guys you admire. They're confident. They walk with a swagger. They, they're the haves that the have-nots hate, but also wish they were like. They're the corporate giants who, who believe that the sky's the limit. These are the guys who run self-esteem seminars. You know, if you can visualize it, you can do it. If you want to be rich, you have to think rich. If you want to move up the ladder, you have to, you have to live like you're going to move up the ladder. If you want to be in the big leagues, you have to sell yourself. These are the guys who teach us how to write our resumes and sit for interviews in a way that employers stand up and take notice. This is the attitude you need to survive in this world. And we can talk about humility, but it's not humility that moves the world. It's strength and power and ambition. When you think about the leaders of the world, do you think about them being humble or being strong? You think you could, you could rise to a position of leadership if you never promoted yourself, if you refused to tell people what you've done, if you're hesitant to toot your own horn? How else do you get ahead? And it's just as true in the church. Who are our heroes? People who are ambitious and opportunistic and, and famous and powerful. Yes, we, we throw in a, a Mother Teresa here or there. And, but let's face it, we admire her, but I don't think any of us are hoping God calls us to the streets of Calcutta. We respect her and we admire her, but I'm not sure we're hoping to be her. We want to be as famous as she is. We want to have the kind of clout that she has. But I don't think we want to do what she has done. And the sooner the church begins to accept that, people tell us, the sooner the church can make an impact on the world. How is the church going to change the world and impact the world if we don't help people in, with the same mindset that the world has? How are they going to recognize us? How will they ever listen to us? Why would they listen to us? It's what makes the world go round. And the sooner we come to grips with that truth, the sooner we make an impact on the world for Christ. That's what we keep hearing. And that's what James and John are implying. The problem is when we come to believe this way, then we begin to think that following God is all about just getting what we want. And Jesus tries to tell James and John that following him will not necessarily get us what we want. In fact, following Christ will probably bring us suffering and pain and hardship. Yes, we'll find fulfillment and we'll find true life. But it probably won't get us what we think we want. 
Instead of seeing their need and asking Jesus to help them be the people that he created them to be, James and John, and I think all the disciples, believe that they're in pretty good shape and they just want Jesus to affirm how great they are and to reward them. Now, we aren't nearly so crass, but I think we probably say things like, if we could just harness the power of God, then we could change the world. And isn't that what we're hoping to do? Change the world. And in order to change the world, you have to have power. You have to think like the world thinks. You have to see things the way the world sees. It's out of that mindset that I think theologies like what's been dubbed name it, claim it are born. God wants you to have every great thing, wealth, power, fame. And the reason you don't is because you don't believe. The reason you're poor or ill or weak is because something's wrong with your faith. You have power from God to get what you want. Now just go get it. And I want to know what I can get from God ends up just being another means of manipulating God. Now there's nothing wrong with being ambitious and there's nothing inherently wrong about wealth or fame or power. In fact, God uses these things as a way of blessing people as you read the scriptures. But if these things are driving us, and if these things are, the, are what we see as the end of our being, then we don't understand the kingdom of God. And so as Jesus and his disciples come to come walk along the road, and they're now arguing, and Jesus stops them, and he says, okay, guys, wait a second. It's not... It's about service and humility. And Jesus doesn't really give James and John a direct answer to their question. He does sort of say to them, you guys are delusional. If you think, yeah, no big deal, we can handle this. But Jesus reminds them that leaders in the kingdom of God are not defined by power, but by surrender and sacrifice and ultimately transformation. They will only be powerful if they acknowledge their weakness, their need for God, their their fallibility, their acknowledgement that they are as unprepared and unworthy of sitting close to Jesus as anything else. And Jesus wants it to be clear that his kingdom is defined by humility and sacrifice. And he says, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you are asking God to make you a servant of all people. Jesus has this, gives them this little lesson on the road, and then they continue on into Jericho. And it seems as though they're there a short time, and they begin to make their way outside the city. And as they're moving outside of the city, Jesus hears a man calling for him. Bartimaeus, who is blind and sits by the side of the road begging. and He's calling out for Jesus. Somehow he knows that Jesus is there. And people are telling him to be quiet. And you can almost hear them saying, look, Jesus doesn't want to have anything to do with you. Who are you to talk to Jesus? But Jesus hears him and he says, bring him over. And he comes over and Jesus asks him the same question. 
What do you want me to do for you? Now, that seems odd to ask a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? It would seem obvious. But there's something about stating what it is you want from Jesus. I mean, we all know people who are in difficult circumstances, who are, who are, at, the, who are at the bottom of, of their lives, who have hit rock bottom, and you look at them and you say, what, what can we do for you? It seems obvious, and yet they're still so enamored with something else. I mean, he could have just as easily said, I'd like to be wealthy. I'd like to have power. I'd like to be top dog in your kingdom. But he says, I want to see. It seems to me that people who are new to Jesus tend to be more interested in healing than in obtaining power. Bartimaeus isn't concerned about power or position. He just wants to be healed. His need is paramount. And it's the need that drives his request. And people who recognize their need for Jesus because they have no reason to think that they deserve anything at all from Jesus are the people who end up experiencing the kind of healing and transformation that Jesus wants to give all of us. Jesus says it's Bartimaeus' faith that's made him well. And Jesus says it's, it's the faith to believe coming to me with, with simple trust that brings the transformation. And faith is directly connected to our recognition of need. Arrogance often eliminates faith because arrogance assumes that we're worthy of what we ask for. And if we don't get it, then something is wrong with God. When you think about the moments in your life when you've been upset because God didn't do what you wanted him to do. Is it possible in that moment that there was a certain sense of entitlement that you felt toward God? Look, Lord, what I've done for you. Look at who I am. Look at all I've given up. I deserve this. You owe me. But faith assumes that we're not worthy of what we ask. And if we get it, it's simply because God is merciful. And arrogance assumes that the kingdom of God is about power and status and recognition. Faith assumes that the kingdom of God is about Jesus. And about humble surrender to him. In the span of just a few hours, probably, Jesus asked the same question. But the results and the implications are radically different. James and John asked because they believe that they're important and they want power. Bartimaeus asked because he believes Jesus is important. And he just wants to be healed. The answer to Jesus' question reveals the desire of their hearts and of ours. The very implication of James and John's question is, is really, request is really pretty startling. We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Wow. Bartimaeus is simply begging for mercy. Mercy. 
sometimes the people who are closest to Jesus, sometimes the people who know the most about God are the most demanding of Jesus. We have this inherent pride about our connectedness to Jesus. And sometimes our behavior and our prayers imply that Jesus is our errand boy. He'll give me whatever I want, when I want it, and exactly how I want it. And we feel this sense of entitlement with God. Now, there is a place for for bold prayers. And there is a place for coming to God with that sense of confidence that he hears us and he loves us and cares about us. But I think we know deep in our spirits the difference. The difference between coming with a sense of entitlement and the difference in coming to God with a sense of confidence, not because we are good, but because he is. As we embark on this new academic year, as we move from maybe a bit more leisure of summer to the structure of fall, what do you want Jesus to do for you? As you grow a year older, as you, as you learn a little bit more, what do you want Jesus to do for you? As you go about your job and the daily routine of living, what do you want Jesus to do for you? In three months or six months or nine months or a year, as you think about your life down the road, what do you want Jesus to do for you? What is it that's pushing you? And driving you. What is it you desire Christ to do. In your life. Maybe it's a healing that needs to take place. Maybe there is a. An addiction that needs to be broken. And you've prayed and prayed. But you've you've prayed that God would do it the way you want him to do it. And now you hear him saying. I want to do this the way I want to do it. In my time and in my way. Perhaps there's a relationship that needs to be healed. You've allowed stuff to build up and you've been hurt. Or maybe you're just irritated with another person. And it's eating away at you. God wants to heal that relationship. Are you ready to let him do it in his time and in his way? Maybe it's wisdom and direction for the future that you, that you seek. Is this relationship right? Is it time to look for a new job or should you be content where you are? Is more schooling the direction you ought to take? Are, are you ready to hear God and to follow his lead in his way and in his time? And all of us need God to work in our hearts. We all need to be more committed to truth and more committed to love unselfishly and compassionately. Are you ready to ask God to soften your heart? Are you ready to ask God to make you a servant? 
as we embark on this new year, I hope that you're looking for God to do something for you. I hope that you're anticipating the miraculous things from God in the days and weeks and months and years ahead. I hope that we're all coming to Christ with a sense of expectancy about what God wants to do for you and for me and for us. Gracious Father, we hear Christ's question. Let our answer please you. Let our answer lead us to transformation and healing. As we come before you humbly and as your servants. We pray that you will lead us and guide us in the days ahead. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.